Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, that bumper is a great sermon. Somebody should do a series on that, I think. That's really awesome. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to teach on one of my very favorite passages of Scripture today. Now, I, I'll be honest and say I have a lot of favorite passages of Scripture. I have life verses, not a life verse, but this one has been pivotal in my development as a Christian because of the way Paul helps us understand something that Jesus said. So let me just quickly lay a piece of groundwork here before I jump into the crux of it and tell you that, that Paul is an interpreter of Jesus to the Western world. Now, I know you don't think of it this way, and frankly, in some cases, because of the English translation, which also captures the Western world, you don't see the difference in, for example, the way Jesus envisioned the self and the way Paul envisions the self. But Paul sees the idea of selfness, of being a self, a person with autonomy, a person made up of their decisions much more like we do than Jesus did, which doesn't mean that Jesus was wrong. It means that Jesus was Eastern. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus grew up in a very different culture. Paul becomes the interpreter of the gospel of Jesus to the Western world. When we say he took the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, that's what we mean. So sometimes Paul will offer a nugget that we can miss, and that nugget is a fleshing out of something Jesus taught, but it's shared more in a framework that we understand, in a context we get. And today the passage I deal with is Jesus' call to discipleship in a Western frame, in a helpful frame to, to, to allow us to see something we might otherwise miss. This is one of the awesome things about Paul. He's so important in the history of the church and so important to what the church became. The way God used Paul as a bridge is the way he's still able to use Paul as a bridge to us as we think about what Jesus taught. Now, I'm going to talk to you today about getting a transplant. Now, I hope you don't literally need a transplant. I mean, when you need one, you need one. So I got really fascinated with the notion of transplantation in the COVID era because we had, as many of you probably know, a member of our church who, young and healthy in every other way, his kidneys began to fail him. And he really started to get pretty sick. I mean, he, he first couldn't eat salt and then he couldn't drink water. It became tougher and tougher for him to survive. And there came a day that his doctor said to him, you guys know Lucas probably, said, Lucas, you won't live without a transplant. This is a young, healthy, strapping, tall, good-looking guy. Just hard to imagine that anything like that was going on, but it was. And so he put out a request to his ignition group. I hope you're all in one, his small group, and he said, I just want you guys to pray with me about this. And instead of just praying, 25-some people in our church put feet to their prayers and went to be tested to see if they could be the donor of the kidney. And one of them, Rob Rogers, turned out to be a perfect match for Lucas. And on a given day, when all of us were praying and celebrating, on that day, one Columbia brother gave a kidney to another Columbia brother and allowed that he might live. It's amazing. Amazing story. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was just, it was not only amazing that he did it, 
But it was amazing that so many people wanted to. In fact, several people came to me and said, you know, you're going to have to pray for me, Pastor, because I was really disappointed I couldn't be the one to do this. I'm like, I don't know about that, but okay, I'll pray for you. It's amazing that so many people loved him in, in that way. But also it's just incredible to think what was possible medically, that his life could be spared. I mean, it wasn't many years ago that this young man in our church, this great leader in our church, would have lost his life. Plain and simple, these technologies we think of as relatively new. So I got kind of fascinated with what breakthroughs enabled transplantation. You probably think about transplantation beginning in about 1967, when I was three years old. In 1967, the first famous heart transplant, the first known heart transplant took place. It happened in South Africa. What you don't know is that there were doctors in Europe and the United States and the African continent racing to be the first ones. It was like a notoriety, uh, a race to notoriety. And the, the first one, as you know, was Dr. Bernard, Dr. Christian Bernard. And he was using techniques, breakthrough techniques, surgical techniques developed by two other surgeons. And more than that, he was benefiting tremendously from a recent breakthrough that had shown how we could keep the body from rejecting somebody else's part. So, you know, you can get a transplant if you want to, but your body's going to go, that ain't me, and it's going to try to keep that thing from functioning that's going to save your life. So the biggest breakthrough is the capacity to get the body not to reject the part of, a, of another person for this to happen. The first Heart transplant patient was in pretty bad shape when he got the transplant. He lived only 18 days. He was a pioneer, though, and he's successful transplant because even 18 days, he wouldn't have made it another one, was a, a, a breakthrough. It was an opportunity for the next person and the next person and the next until we've gotten where we are today and we'll go much further in this technology. Really pretty amazing. By the way, interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this or not, but this idea of, of receiving a transplant was incredibly controversial in its day, including among some Christians who thought that it was unnatural, ungodly, unholy, etc. We don't even think about that now, but it's amazing to, to remember how this has changed in so few years. So you may think, well, transplantation must date back the day. I got fascinated about this, and this is the great thing about preaching. I'll tell you, there's nothing like preaching and teaching because you get to satisfy all your curiosity. You know, it's like your job to read stuff that you want to read. Like they'll tell you, look, it's your job, Jim, to stay up on this stuff, and we'll, we'll, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll write you a check for doing this. It doesn't get any better than that, right? So I got curious about transplants, and I wanted a book on this, and I started looking around, and there was a brand new book. When I looked, this is like three weeks ago, a brand new book was coming out two days from when I was ready to read it, and it was coming out in Kindle form right off the bat, so didn't cost me as much money, etc. And that new book, if you want to read it, is called Spare Parts. It is a magnificent book. It is totally fascinating. It's also a little gruesome, so I'll warn you up front. If stories like Ananias and Sapphira and Acts bother you, this will be worse. If you don't know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about their giving and their guts spilled out in church and they died. That's not a good thing. So, but it does get your children interested in the Bible. I'm going to tell you. So, this book is fascinating, though, and it was really intriguing to see the history of transplantation. Now, I'm going to give you a little easy quiz. This is easy. The first part is, anyway. 
So what was the, fu- the first human organ that was transplanted? Everybody, I'm going to count to three, and you have to say it so other people, you're accountable for your answer. One, two, three. Skin. Who said skin? Easy one, right? You're so right. Did you know that or did you just guess it? Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> so the first recorded skin, we've had a face transplant now. For good, wouldn't that be interesting? You wake up and look in the mirror and you're someone else. Anyway, now we've had that. But, but the first skin transplant that was recorded was in Egypt in 500 B.C., accomplished not by surgeons or doctors, but by farmers. Farmers who had figured out from transplanting crops and grafting crops that maybe you could do this with the human body. They tried it and it worked. And we've been experimenting with that since at least that time, maybe before, but that's the first recorded record. And from then on, you can read this history. And again, if you're interested in such things, I highly commend this book to you. Really, really intriguing. But the reason I was interested is because of my reading of Ephesians, which everybody knows is about transplants, right? Well, it is. It is about receiving a self-transplant a transplantation of the self at the hands of the great physician, Jesus Christ. It is trading oneself in for another. It is by the power of the forgiveness of the cross and by the recreation of the resurrection, the creation of a self within us that is in the likeness of God. That's a back to the future self because it's who we were born to be. It's who we were created to be. It is what we were before sin and shame got in the way, before they busted the world so badly. And now what we think of ourselves is warped. It's off. Nobody in this room, including me, really knows themselves. Can we accept that? You think you do. You're positive that you know yourself like nobody possible. You know that you know yourself, and you spend a lot of time justifying and defending the self you think that you are. But in reality, no matter how much input you get, and no matter how perceptive you are, and no matter how much journaling you do, and no matter how much introspection you do, you cannot truly know yourself. And no one else can truly know you either. There is a mystery to who we are. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Who you were created to be is clearly laid out for us in Scripture. The self that we can be is more obvious than the self that we are. This is really intriguing. Now, this notion of self, as Paul discusses it, is rooted in Greco-Roman philosophy. And so Paul was deeply steeped in that philosophy, and he takes what Jesus says, and he says, let me talk to you about the self, about the id, about the you, about who you perceive yourself to be. And Paul's going to call us to a self-transplant. The first existential philosopher, most would say, was Soren Kierkegaard. He's an 18th or 19th century Danish philosopher. Uh, interestingly enough, he was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was an ethicist. He was a theologian first, but he took his theology and he offered it in a philosophical form that others could hear. Kierkegaard is most famous for the leap of faith. All of you know about the leap of faith, right? You wouldn't know about it were it not for Soren Kierkegaard. There would have been no Raiders of the Lost Ark without Soren Kierkegaard. So this idea of a leap of faith from the known to the unknown, 
from what can be sensed to what we trust might be there in faith. That's Kierkegaard. But Kierkegaard famously said in probably his most famous book of his day, which was called The Sickness Unto Death, he said the greatest hazard of all, what? Losing one's self can occur very quietly in the world. He goes on in the following paragraph to speak about how anything else that you lose, you'll notice. He says, if you lose an appendage, you're going to know about it. You lose a $5 bill, you're going to know about it. That was a lot more money then than it is now. But $5 bill, you're going to know about it. You lose your wife, you're going to know about it. But you'll lose yourself and you'll never even know it happened. It'll happen as though in the middle of the night. It'll disappear because the world traps us. The world convinces us that we need to be somebody God didn't make us to be. The world traps us in a specific way that Paul's going to help us understand. And before we know it, the self is gone. Now, by the self, I don't mean the self you necessarily think you are, the one you defend. That's become warped. Look at at how warped and messed up the world's sense of self is. And by the way, that's what we're in right now is a conflict between people's perceptions of themselves. So just yesterday, this wasn't in the sermon I wrote, but I thought about it immediately. In Buffalo, New York, a young man walked into a store and took 10 lives, shot 13 people, heavily armored, in armored vests, looked like a soldier, walks into a store and does it. His sole motivation was his sense that he was defending himself and people like him. Now look, last time I checked, when you walk in and you pull a weapon and you kill people, you're not defending yourself. But that's what he perceived himself to be doing. And that's because right now in our culture, there is such a strong sense everyone has of what the self is. And they're trying to justify and defend it all the time. They constantly feel afraid and under threat that somebody is going to take what is important to them from them, their sense of self. That kind of fear will destroy a society. It will destroy a human being. It is destroying us. Paul's words today are rich and meaningful. Kierkegaard was right. We have ourselves robbed from us in the middle of the night. So what does Paul say about the self? So first, I'll warn you that I'm going to preach the front of Paul's words here and the back of Paul's words and come back to the middle. The back is the most intriguing philosophically and the most profound. It is also the section that has been most helpful to me. But you've got to understand the rest of it before you'll get it. So remember what Paul did. He laid the foundation, right? He said we should be gentle and humble. That's the definition of the life of Christ that is in us. And then he goes to talk about the church. That's what we did last week before he does anything else. He's going to deal with the church as the picture of the true self, of the true identity of Christ in us, what we were created to be. And now he's going to lay a philosophical foundation for all of the human relationships he's going to discuss. Marriage, parenting, uh, our jobs, all sorts of things he's going to talk about in the rest of Ephesians. But this underpinning, this philosophical underpinning is what he's thinking about the whole time. I tell you this. And in fact, friends, he says in verse 17, I insist on it in the Lord. And I'm positive about this. I'm confident about this. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, 
it's really important you understand here, by Gentiles, Paul is not talking about a race of people in this case. In fact, Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the defender of the equal access to the throne of grace through the cross of the Gentiles with the Jews. Paul was responsible for the spread of the church to the Gentiles more than any other. So he's got nothing against the race or class of people called Gentiles. But in this case, the word he uses actually indicates an unbeliever, somebody who does not know Jesus Christ, somebody who is still lost, somebody whose self is still warped. You must not be like those people who in the futility of their thinking are lost. What does futility mean? It means, it means pointlessness. It means uselessness. And by pointless and useless, Paul means things that don't count for eternity. They could have some use to you in this world, but eternally they have no value. And so he says, essentially, you're lost in the everyday transactions of life, the everyday transactions of the world, and you've become futile. Now, this is a great scripture for us because I just am curious how many of you would say that if I use the word futile to describe the way people are walking in our world today, it'd be a pretty good descriptor. Do you think so? It's futile. People have become futile. They've become hopeless. They are resorting to measures they never would have before. They're clinging to power they never would have cared about before. They're trying anything they can, militarily, anything they can, politically, anything they can in their everyday life to build a fortress around themselves and protect and preserve the self they believe is worthy of preservation. That's where we are. This is a futile day. But so was Paul's. In fact, I I guess I would argue that the world's always been relatively futile since that first sin broke everything and since we perpetuated it. Paul says these people are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance. This is not stupidity. Ignorance is not dumbness. It's just a lack of knowing. It's not understanding because of what they do not know. And the reason they do not know this is because of the hardening of their hearts. Now, if you're like me, you see hardening of the hearts in the Scripture so often that when you see it, you kind of gloss over it. But can we talk for a minute about what the hardening of the heart means, about what that is? If you say to me, Jim, your heart is hard, I will tell you I'm going to take that as a tremendous injury. It will hurt me because that's not what I want to be to you or to anyone else. But the reason our hearts get hardened is because we build walls around our hearts to protect ourselves from pain. The problem is that the same sense of self-preservation that protects and preserves us from pain keeps us from every other positive feeling, or intimacy as well. And before long, we've locked ourselves away not only from pain, but from love. Because if you cannot be hurt, you cannot love. Hear me again. If you cannot be hurt, you cannot love. If you're constantly lashing out to try to avoid being injured or hurt, you are holding intimacy and love at bay. Because that same wall that guards you from pain also guards you from love. Now, I frankly know this from personal experience because I've done it. I've been guilty of it in the past. 
I know when I did it. I built every brick of that wall with transaction, with little things I thought would make my life better. What's in it for me? Every brick in your wall says, what's in it for me? How can I protect myself, preserve myself, justify myself, defend myself? Now, you know this, right? All of you who are parents know this. I mean, my goodness, you know, do you remember the first time? I bet you do. I remember the first time for both my daughters. Some some of you are a lot closer to this than I am now. The first time they said, I can do it. Oh, your kids didn't say this? I can do it myself. Now, there's nothing wrong with that sometimes. I'm ready to tie my own shoes. Good. Do it. I'm tired of doing it anyway. I can do it myself. I can get dressed. I can fold my clothes. It takes a long time to learn that one. But anyway, somewhere out there. I can make my own bed. Did that ever happen? I don't think that ever happened in our house. But before long, it becomes a habit. And then we start saying that we can take care of things we cannot. And we say, I can do it myself when we really do need other people. And more importantly, we say to God, I can do it myself. I don't need you. I don't need your love. I don't need your grace. don't need your mercy. It's the essence of lostness. I start defending the self and trying to prove to everybody around me that I can handle it, even though deep within my soul, I know I cannot. And what has happened is that wall that's holding out pain is holding out intimacy, and one day, you wake up and you're lonely, and you don't know why. You feel completely isolated, and you don't know why, and I know this because I deal with so many people. Actually, I was just talking to somebody in our congregation about this this past week, where she is, and you know, is something that I'd said a thousand times. I said, you know, I, I know you pretty well, and what's happened is you've built this wall, and it is holding pain out, but it's holding all the love and the intimacy that you crave out, and you're desperate inside this wall. And I just said to her, how's that working for you? And she said, you know, it's not. It's the first realization, isn't it? I can't do it myself. I can't. And I can't hold it all together. And I can't make it all perfect. And I can't get it all right. And I can't fix other people. All these realizations that come to us are the essence of grappling with sin and shame in our own lives and that of others. This hardening of our hearts will kill us. And before long, we are no longer sensitive to the direction of God, the voice of God, the love of God, the intimacy with God, and we're no longer, therefore, sensitive to other people either. And once that happens, we are cold and we are dead. Uh, I love Dorothy Sayers. I don't know how many of you do, but... um, she, she's a, a, a great saintly voice from the past. She was, uh, she was the, the, the real maker of the faith and work movement that I'm so much a part of, but she just has such deep philosophy. And I was reading one of her books a few weeks ago, and I love this line. I highlighted this line. She said, she said, if you want your own way, God will let you have it. Hell is having your own way forever. Listen again, because it's profound. If you want your own way, God will let you have it. Hell is having your own way forever. This is what Paul's saying. 
So he says, I'm going to come back to this part, so I'm going to read through it so I don't upset you by skipping verses. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Now, here's the self-transplant. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self, which is the old self you were created to be, which is what Adam was made to be, which is what Jesus was, to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, my friends, if you've never had one before, or if it's still ongoing, at the hands of the great physician, you need, I need, we need a self-transplant. Now, we'll say that this is uniquely Pauline in some ways. The way he talks about the self here is different. It it, it is new. In, In Paul's day, people would have heard it, and for the first time, a lot of people would go, I get that, you know, because I read Aristotle, I read Plato, I, I, I understand these ancient philosophies. Paul's saying, let me show you what this looks like in the world. So first, put off your old self. Second, second, between the put on and the new, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Remember, uh, Paul said that our minds needed to be restored and renewed on more than one occasion, Romans in particular, and put on the new self. So Take something off, put something on. Take something off, put something on. Now, Paul's using a metaphor here we understand well, which is changing clothes. Let me ask you a question here. Have you ever come down? This is assuming you're married, but maybe there's somebody else in your life, your mother or somebody who plays this role. But guys, this is for you because I know women, they're better at this than we are. You know, Scott, when you got ready to go to the party the other night, this is for you. So have you ever stepped, have you ever stepped out and you're getting ready to go somewhere and you've dressed carefully and you feel pretty good about you, Right? And you, and you come down stairs and you go, you ready to go, honey? And she says, what did she say, guys? Is that what you're going to wear? <laughs> well, I, 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 I thought about it. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is cocktail. So, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, I'm feeling pretty cocktail-y, right? She says, uh, Okay. That's what you're going to wear. It's fine. Now, you know you're not going to wear that. That's not going to happen, right? <laughs> if the tie's wrong, you're going to change it. If the suit's wrong, you're going to change it. If you're supposed to have on a suit, you're going to change it. And by the way, don't bother walking out of here after worship. Some of you and going, preacher, is that what you're going to wear? Yes, this is what I'm going to wear. I'm, I'm feeling pretty preachy right now. Okay, so, <clears throat> so it doesn't stop there, though. Now, I don't know whether you guys are good at this or not, but Debbie is really good. First of all, she doesn't suffer fools, and I'm a fool sometimes. And secondly, she will tell you what she's thinking, and she'll tell you right now. I'll just warn you in advance about this. And so some of you are like that. Some of you aren't. It's just how my wife is. So, you know, uh, when I am in a grumpy mood, which happens very seldom, but when it does... I'm tired or something, and I'll come down, and it's the same exact voice as that what you're going to wear, and I'll walk in, and I'll, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll say something, and, and she'll look at me and say, 
I think you need to go back upstairs and do whatever you need to do to get an attitudinal adjustment. Do you guys know what an attitudinal adjustment is? Yeah, so you like this? Because I could be getting you in trouble, Kevin. This could happen to you this afternoon. So she'll say, she'll say, why don't you just go back and walk back through the steps? Get out of bed again. If you need another shower, take another shower, whatever. When you come back, we'll see if things are squared away. And my alternative is that she's going to walk away from me until I get an attitudinal adjustment. And what Paul's saying here is you need an attitudinal adjustment. And the readjustment is a change of clothes. It's to prepare for what you'll wear in eternity, your real self, who you really are. Paul says, look, you don't know who you are. I'm going to tell you in Christ who you really are at your best, who God made you to be. I'm going to help you see that. And once you see that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to shift from one thing you're wearing to another. And that attitudinal change is a change away from things in the world that are futile and pointless and useless and towards God who is your lover, the lover of your soul for eternity. You are beloved of the Father. That's all that counts for eternity, nothing else. So Paul's going to say, I'm going to help you shift to that place. Then he says, if you're in the likeness of God, this is how I will know it. He says, true righteousness and true holiness Now, before we look at those two words, which are really intriguing, let's look at what Jesus said, okay? So Jesus, this is Luke 9, 23. This is the heart of our theology of discipleship, whole life discipleship as we call it. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, say the three steps with me, must what? Deny themselves. Second, take up their cross. Third, follow me. Do you notice what this is? The denial of the self is the recognition that the way I see myself is inaccurate. The denial of self is a recognition that much of what the world has done for me is corrupt and useless. The denial of self is a recognition of my own brokenness and my own sin and my own pain. The denial of self is the awareness that I am not everything that God wants me to be or created me to be. And that has to come first. So a lot of people come to Jesus, even we're doing baptism tonight, and they say, I want to take the self that I am right now, who I perceive myself to be, and I would like for you then to baptize that self. Tell me everything I talk about, everything I think, everything I believe is right. In fact, this is what a lot of people like their preachers to do. It's just to get up and be an echo chamber for what they already think. So just tell me I'm right. Let me go home and think I'm right and everyone else out there is wrong. That's your job, Jim. I don't know how to do that job because I've read the Bible. So here's the problem. I don't even see myself that way. I know I'm not right all the time. I know myself is misperceived by me. I understand this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. To die with Jesus means to change your attitude from the things of the world to the heart of God. And then follow me. Put on the new self. This is what Jesus said. Jesus wasn't talking about the self in the same way that Paul is, but it's what he means. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit 
their very self. Now, the problem is you and I perceive that the self, the more we have of the world, the more we can protect the self. But Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. When you stop trying to preserve the false self and you turn to God to see what he created you to be and you discover the new self, you will find you do not need the whole world anymore. You just don't need it. Now, this is profound philosophy. It's really powerful, but it's really powerful the way Paul puts it to me. He says, we're all new in, we're all in, we're all out. We're all new in Christ. We are all in to the presence of God, and we're all out in the way that we serve people. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, and that new self is created to be like God in two ways, and this is what's interesting about this in the Greek. The two ways are what we know in English as righteousness and holiness, but these are loaded terms. Like if I ask you, what does righteousness mean? You're going to go, um, well, uh, You're going to give me a Sunday school answer of some sort, holiness, but looking at the Greek is a little clearer. So the Greek word for righteousness means approval in God's eyes. Plain and simple, to be righteous is to be approved by God. That's what we're really all desperate for, even if we don't know it. It is that our creator would love us with an everlasting love, which he does, but that we would know it and understand it. We are approved of him in Jesus, by him in Jesus' name. Now, I'm going to tell you something because this is important. There's nothing else you will ever accomplish in life that will come close to that. You won't know it until you know it. And until you know it, you will have to accomplish more and more and more and own more and more and more and control more and more and more until you someday discover this is not making me happy. I am not intimately connected to my God or to others. I am lost. And when you decide that and you let go of that stuff, then you will discover all that matters to me is to receive the approval of God for eternity. That's all that matters. What's interesting is what the word holiness means. So the Greek word for holiness really means what is approved by God. Isn't that kind of circular? So, so righteousness is being approved by God, and holiness is that which is approved by God in the world. So my response to receiving God's approval and love, my response to being accepted by him in all of my brokenness and ugliness, my response to that is to say, Lord, I will agree with you that it is best that I use everything you created for your glory and for my good. And the problem is we use everything in the world for our glory and then hope that God will call it good. That's a problem. Let me give you some examples to help you here because Paul's getting ready to help you a lot. Everything God created is good. I can show you point and verse a hundred times. Everything God created is good. There's nothing that is bad in the world. It is only our use of it that is bad. And we are prompted, corrupted by Satan, prompted, corrupted by the world to misuse what God has created and therefore to become idolaters because we worship the things of the world instead of the things of God. And I need to tell you, in case you don't know, you become what you worship. You just become what you worship. So I start to believe that everything out there is for my pleasure and it all gets disrupted and warped. I'll start with an easy example, food. 
You guys like food? Yeah, well, who doesn't? In our culture, we call, we call scarcity when there's something supposed to be on the shelf at the store and it's not. We don't know anything about scarcity. We don't know anything about this. So food is supposed to be for our sustenance, and clearly God made it enjoyable for our enjoyment. And I'm all into good food, but before long, we become obsessed with it, and we become addicted to it. And now we start to eat for pleasure solely. We start to eat for the buzz it gives to us, for how it makes us feel better. And before long, our bodies become distorted and warped, and this is not the self that God made us to be. It's called gluttony. It is a sin akin to every other sin in the Bible, and many of us, including me, are often guilty of it in this society. Am I right? God did not intend food to become the master of your life. God intended for you to be the master of that in his name, for his glory, not for it to be the master of you. And here's the funny thing about food is on the other extreme, and I can find these people in the same family, no problem. On the other extreme, I'll find a person that is so food obsessed, they no longer will eat anything. They are starving their bodies to death and their control of food once again has become an addiction and an obsession. And they have started to worship something that God made instead of the God who made it. Does this make sense? Take sex, please. What our culture has done with sexuality, God made sexuality as the superglue of marriage. I can show you this chapter and verse. It is to be the intimate binder of a husband and wife, one man and one woman for life. It hurts and destroys us when we take it out of that context. But the world tells us if it feels good, do it. What's in it for me? And before long, sexuality has become something else. On the other extreme, I can show you people that are so anti-sex, if it were up to them, the world would never have been perpetuated. God wants us to have a healthy view of sexuality. You created it for good, Lord, and I will use it for good, Lord, because you approve of me. And that is how I am grateful to you. On and on and on it goes. Some years ago, I dealt with a drug addict who really wanted to be clean. So bad. This guy was a really good guy. Um, he, his life was a train wreck. It was a mess. And he would come in. I lived in Lynchburg. He would come in and talk to me. He would use in our stairwell. And so I'd walk in and I'd see him. He was smoking crack, which was the big, big thing back then. And I would just say, hey, man, come on up and get something to eat with me. I'd see him right there in the stairwell. Come on, eat something with me. He'd always tell me how desperate he was to be sober. And I said, well, man, get sober. Whatever you need to do. I said, what would I have to say one day? I said, tell me the one thing I could say that would make a difference. Because I've said everything I know to say. I'm not a crack addict, so I may not understand this. So help me understand. And he said, okay, if you can convince me that I will never, ever again feel like the way I did the first time I used. I'll quit. I said, that's a really interesting statement. So I said, have you ever felt like you did the first time you used? He goes, no, never. He said, the first time I smoked crack, I felt like I was on top of the world. I could do anything. I was invincible. I felt so euphoric and so good, it was amazing. He said, every hit since then has been an attempt to get back there. But now, in my addiction, I've gotten to a point, I gotta smoke it just to feel normal. I gotta smoke it just not to be sick. 
I don't even know what to do with myself when I'm not high. You see what happened? What a trap. It felt good the first time. Tell me, friends, how many things are like this in your life? Remember the first dollar you ever earned? You thought you could buy anything. Couldn't buy anything. Thought you could. Felt good. First job you had, do you remember that? Man, my first job, I thought, I, 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 am, I am boss. First girlfriend you ever had, boyfriend you ever had, remember that? First A you ever got? The first job you ever had that was really satisfying, like you got rewarded for what you did, and then all of a sudden, accomplishment won't do it for you anymore. It doesn't matter how much you accomplish. You're never going to feel that again. Not going to happen because it's futile. It's empty. And what you've been shown is that yourself has become a junkie on what the world offers. Now, this is what Paul's going to tell us. The self is a junkie. Because this is what's happened. Come back to the middle. This is profound. Now, if it's not for you, that's fine. I'm going to tell you, this is life-changing for me. Paul says that these people who are darkened and futile in their thinking have lost all sensitivity, and instead they have given themselves over to sensuality, and that has made them full of greed. This sentence is so profound. I hope you can absorb it like I do because I love this thing. So listen carefully. They've lost all sensitivity. The old self has lost all sensitivity. But the first created self, what God intended was that we would be sensitive creatures, sensitive to him and his presence, sensitive to his love, sensitive to his calling, sensitive to his approval, sensitive to his voice. We were created to respond to God. And in turn, he gave us these intimate relationships. Beginning in the garden with marriage, the first human pair was created together. A relationship was created. And he invited them to be sensitive to one another and the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, my body doesn't reject this because it's given to me for intimacy. We were created to be intimately connected creatures to God and to each other. But we did not like that sensitivity because we could not control it. And so in our idolatry, one transaction at a time, we built a wall to protect ourselves from pain. And before we knew it, our hearts were hardened and we were no longer sensitive. So here's what happens when you're not getting your needs met with sensitivity. That is, God's intimacy is not satisfying me. My husband or wife's intimacy is not satisfying me. My friend's intimacy is not satisfying me. My church and intimacy with them is not satisfying me because I'm not letting them in. I'm not allowing myself to be truly connected because I'm afraid they'll hurt me. So what happens when this occurs is that you start trying to replace it with what the world offers. And the world tells us, it teaches us that these things will satisfy you, but they won't. And that's called sensuality. It's when I start to rely on what my eyes can see, my ears can hear, what I can smell, what I can feel. Beyond my senses, I trust nothing. If I can't sense it with my senses, it's not real. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1 says that... Faith is believing in things that are unseen. But I start to give away all of that unseen stuff. Love, intimacy, connection. And I trade it all in for what the world offers me. And it's a trap. It's an addiction. 
I become a world junkie. And before long, I can't get enough. I can't get enough news, especially bad news. I can't get enough stuff, so I'm constantly buying to try to satisfy myself. I can't get enough money. I don't even know how to give it away anymore. My goodness, you're asking me to give? Really? (laughs) No, I need this to maintain myself. And before long, I've become totally lost in the trap of the world. This is what Paul's painted. That corrupted self has become a sensual beast, a pulsing sensual beast moving through the world and consuming in an attempt to gain what cannot be gotten except through sensitivity. We become insensitive creatures. And when we become insensitive, Paul says, we are full of greed. And when we're full of greed, we're selfish. And now we start to defend that self justify that self, argue with everyone about the rightness of that self and therefore the wrongness of everybody else. And we're trapped. We're totally trapped. And the first thing we have to do is recognize that we are. I mean, are you capable of saying, I'm cold, I'm lonely, I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm caught in the rat wheel of the world and I can't get off. I'm just looking for that first hit and it never comes again. I've become a junkie. That's sin. That's shame. That's brokenness. That's what the Bible's talking about. You're full of greed. You know, we don't even see ourselves right anymore. It's funny how we see ourselves. How many of you love when people send you those, uh, those uh, avatar emojis they make of themselves? Just out of curiosity, how many of you have one? I've gotten some of yours. You send them to me, and they don't look like, I mean, you, like I always look at that thing and go, who is that? This is what they think they look like. But we all have an image of what we think we look like, right? So let me tell you, in my mind, I'm 20 years old, and I am very blonde. This is true. That's how I grew up. My, I was a towhead. My hair was so blonde, you didn't get any blonder than I was. And so if you ask me to this day, no matter when you ask me in my life, what color's your hair, I would have told you blonde. Never mind that as I got older, it became what we in North Carolina called dishwater blonde. You know, it became like a darker brown, but that's not me. I'm blonde. If I see myself, I'm blonde. Any of you agree with me, understand this, what I'm talking about here? Well, listen to what happened to me the last couple of years. You did it to me. It's your fault. The other day, I'm walking down the hall, and I run in to Kestrel Riser. Kestrel will tell you exactly what she's thinking right now. I love Kestrel. She's awesome. And Kestrel walks up to me with a A flummoxed look on her face. This is the kind of look you get from people when they're going to ask you, Pastor, what's the meaning of life? You know, I'm excited because she's going to ask me a deep theological question. She's a smart kid. She walks up to me and she goes, Dr. J? Yeah. You used to have brown hair, but now it's white. (laughs) I said, Gestrel, honey, thank you so much. You made my day. I got to go preach now. No one hair. At least I got it. So I still see myself, though, and, and, and that's not me. I, I, 
I get home that day, I'm a little, little sensitive about this. I get home and I, I walk in and I say to Debbie, honey, do you, do you think my hair is turning gray? And she goes, it's sexy, it's distinguished, I like it. <laughs> and that's really not what I asked. So <laughs> I go up, she did say this, it's true. She said, I've always liked gray men. So now I finally am one. So anyway, I went up to, to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I went, dad, go on it, she's right. But I hadn't even noticed because my perception of myself is so strong, it warps even what I see in the mirror. Do you know this about yourself? It warps what I see. Some people's perception is so warped, they see someone 100 pounds heavier. Some people see somebody 100 pounds lighter. Somebody sees somebody with different hair color. Some people see somebody with no more confidence. Some people see, we don't see ourselves correctly. The world has warped the way we see the self. And as a result of that, we don't recognize that there is a better self that God created us to be for eternity that he wants to give us through the breakthrough of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't have to be these things. We talked about being defensive some time ago. You don't have to be. I was amazed how many people easily saw defensiveness in others but did not see it in themselves. Did not see it at all. Warped. It's funny because some of them I would go, (laughs) really? Okay. That's cool. You you do you. That's what we say in this culture. You do you. Just be who you are, man. Paul says it this way in another way. He says their destiny, these people, is destruction. This is the same way of saying this because their God is their what? Their appetite. And therefore their glory is their shame. Their defense of themselves is their defense of their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. That's where the real self can be found. In Romans 12, 15 through 16, he says this, Rejoice with those who mourn. I rejoice. Be sensitive. Gentle. Humble. Mourn with those who mourn. And then this is another phrase we gloss over, live in harmony with each other. Living in harmony does not mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of beauty. Harmony is when you and I operate in such a way together, the music that comes out of our lives. You guys who are musicians, you know this. It's a lot of sometimes dissonant notes on a page, sometimes notes that really fit together. The harmony, the beauty is the way it goes together. This is what God intended. And in order to do it, there has to be a transplant. It's got to be all new. It's got to be all in. You have to go all out. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on this new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Resurrection breakthrough restores God's image in us. So beautiful in Scripture, you know. Jesus dies on the cross. He's told us it's for forgiveness. We're fully forgiven in the cross, completely accepted by God despite how botched up we are. He loves us anyway. We're completely accepted, and then the resurrection comes, and Jesus stands 
in the closed room with the apostles on the night of the resurrection, and he, he breathes on them, the Bible says, and says, receive now the Holy Spirit. What is he doing? He's recreating. God breathed the breath of life in the clay of the ground, the night of the resurrection. Jesus rebreathed the image of God into us. And that's the real self. That's the real deal. No matter what you see. I'll close with a little story that's kind of funny. I can tell it after all these years, but uh, Debbie has a really smart, artistic sister. Um, she's really really artsy. Debbie is too, but, but Amy, I think, just has a particular flair for things, and she loves to paint, loves to do things, and she knew this famous painter where she lives, and she goes, you know, she decided she's going to give us a surprise, and when our kids came to stay with her, she took them for sittings, and this famous artist does these renditions of them, and they and then she tells us afterwards, start to look forward to this because this person's really famous. I mean, this is really going to be a big deal. When these come, we started talking about it, looking forward to it. They come, and they come to her first. And Debbie asks her, what do you think? And Amy goes, well, well, she says, uh, this artist is really famous. <laughs> it must be right. Shows them to her parents. Her parents are like, who is that, Right? They come to us and we go, who is that? Those pictures, they're in the basement. Everybody knows that because they're not my daughters. They don't look anything like my daughters. They look nothing like my daughters, nothing. But the famous artist said, that's what you look like. The problem is when my daughters looked at it, they said, is that what we look like? It's distorted. It brought out worse features, not best. There was something about it that just was off-putting, probably frightening. And here's what we do, friends. We say, the world is famous. It must be right. These stars, these experts, these newscasters, these politicians, you fill in the blank with whoever you listen to. They're experts, so they must be right. And what they say I should be must be what I should be. I am a consumer. I am a worker. I am fill in the blank. There is only one person who knows what you look like. It is God. And in Jesus, he has shown you the picture of your true self. And if you want to know him and be known by him for eternity, what you're going to need, I'm going to need, we're going to need, at the hands of the great physician, the breakthrough of the cross and the resurrection, a self transplant, a self-transplant. I think Paul's pretty profound here. Help me so much. So, Father, you know who I am better than I know who I am. You know who I am better than these people know who I am, though you often speak through them to tell me what you want to hear. You know who I am more than my family knows who I am, though sometimes you use them too to teach me who I am. You know who I am more than the world knows who I am. And so I will choose to turn my attention toward you, my attitude toward you, and I will believe that I am who you say I am. And I will seek to become that person, that self that you've made me to be, and it will be possible only because of the power of the Holy Spirit 
and the breakthrough of the cross and the resurrection. And Lord, there's somebody listening to me right now who desperately, desperately needs to get out of the place that they are. They feel broken. They feel lost. They feel lonely. They're afraid even to tell anyone. They feel completely unloved and unloving. And they need for that wall to be broken down and an opportunity to be given afresh and anew for them to take on, to clothe themselves in that new self you made them to be. And so I pray, Lord, that that person might hear me and then pray with me, Lord Jesus, I accept your cross as full forgiveness, your resurrection as recreation. I ask you to live inside of me forever. I pray, Lord, that you would make me to be the self you created me to be at my very best not just now, but for eternity. And Lord, for all of us, this is hard work. It hurts us to see sometimes what we've become. So breakthrough, we pray, through your amazing love and grace, and change us from the inside out in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, look forward to seeing you at baptism tonight as we watch people take on that new self. It's powerful. You have a great week. Go and be the self God made you to be because you are a thing of beauty when you are. Go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.